coming to you live from an undisclosed location. Well, not really. Not live. Not undisclosed. Coming to you from Fresno, California. This is Tom with the Gribble Nation Roadcast. So taking inspiration from Dan the other day with uh, Dan Murphy's Garage. Uh, we are going to talk about cars that have been in my automotive lineup over the years. Um... So suffice to say, uh, me having been born in Detroit, Michigan, uh, amongst several family members that work for the auto manufacturers, and with a father that actually ended up sponsoring a NASCAR team uh, when he was the vice president of marketing for an online company, I'll get more into that story later, uh, I have been around cars pretty much my entire life uh, and had a pretty particularly strong passion for cars. So, um, the types of vehicles I have driven over the years and owned uh, has been pretty wide. Uh, surprisingly owned very, what I would consider very few, uh, compared to how many I've actually driven. Uh, so, I kind of try to get into a list of cars that I actually thought were, were notable, and they're, they're mostly going to, they're going to be bad. Uh, it's, you can talk about like all the cool cars like Corvettes and things like that that you know, might have driven once or twice, but honestly, they're really not all that thrilling compared to some of the stuff that I have in mind. But um, getting into it, cars that I have owned. Uh, so going way, way back, um, not a car that I own, but the first vehicle I really learned how to drive was my dad's S10 uh, when I was nine years old in New Milford, Connecticut. We had a several-acre several lot of property. Um, my dad was always doing things like building things in the backyard, um, kind of like dredging things out, uh, building berms, all sorts of weird stuff. We actually built the pool, a giant shed, a treehouse. Uh, so it was just easier for him to teach me how to drive um, around the yard and, and do things when like he was working. So that was kind of cool. I don't think most people even back then really got to learn how to drive a car or really operate a car at that age. Um, I had been driving mopeds, uh, dirt bikes for, or riding dirt pads and motor, uh, mopeds, stuff like that for quite a while. Um, so at least there was some basis for it, uh, but it was very neat to learn how to drive correctly um, from my dad, who was a very experienced driver and probably what one would consider a member of the road community if it was in a modern context. So that kind of moves us up to uh, high school in Michigan when we had moved back uh, to Michigan in the Lansing area. Uh, I had wanted a G-body car, uh, a General Motors G-body car. So this was rear-wheel drive, midsize, mostly coupes. Uh, I really wanted a G-Body. In particular, I wanted a uh, Chevy Monte Carlo SS if we could find one. Uh, just, just really, really liked the look of it. Uh, it looked like, you know, pretty much something you would see in 1980s NASCAR because it's essentially what that car was meant to do. It was meant to homologate it. Uh, they had to sell a certain number of cars so that they could actually race it in NASCAR. So, like, uh, the... I forget what it was called. I think it was the Ford Thunderbird, Aero Coupe, the Pontiac Grand Prix 2 Plus 2. Uh, those types of cars were kind of derivatives of the mainline product, so to speak, to be able to race them, or at least race the body configuration in NASCAR. Uh, so we never did find it. Uh, probably uh, to my mom's 
great joy uh, because this was the era of front-wheel drive cars being an absolute must-have uh, in the eyes of many adults in the Michigan at the time. Um, this is before really modern traction control and stuff like that took place. You might have things like halfway good, decent posi traction, but probably really not so much. Um, so we looked for a, a Chevy Beretta, couldn't find one, uh, but kind of got luck, lucked out a little bit. Um, actually found a 92 Pontiac Sunbird, which actually had the 3.1 liter uh, LH0 V6. So what's significant about that is uh, this was the same engine that was used in the Cavalier Z26. Uh, my brother had a Cavalier Z26, and I always liked the car. Uh, so for a high school car, this was actually pretty peppy, especially in the 90s. Uh, 140 horsepower in a car that's like maybe 2,900 pounds. It was actually fairly quick. It was certainly enough to kind of out-compete, so to speak, a lot of the four-cylinder cars that were kind of humming around the high school. But um, that didn't really last too long. Uh, my dad was commuting to Chicago at the time, uh, which anyone familiar with the Midwest knows that's not exactly a short trip. So he actually had a 1500 series Chevrolet truck at the time. So at, at the time, this was in 1997, so this was not technically a Silverado yet. It was just a 1500 Chevy. So we traded, uh, given that basically I was just putting around between school and doing whatever the hell I was doing at the time, and he wanted the, four, the, well, the V6 to go back and forth between Chicago. So we swapped, and I ended up keeping the truck. Um, at the time, he had already put about 120,000 miles on it, and I believe this was 1999, so he was driving a lot because uh, he bought that thing new in 97. Uh, so it wasn't like it was a brand-new truck, but, you know, he had a second-generation uh, Chevy small block 350 in this thing. This is really before, like, the kind of the LS block derivatives came into play in the third generation uh, Chevy small block with the Silverado. Uh, so this is kind of cool being able to say I was able to drive um, kind of regularly an old Chevy 350. Granted, it was the second generation. Uh, this Silver, well, almost slipped up and called it a Silverado. This 1500 uh, did have 4x4. So it had the 4x4 low and high selector, which was really nice to have in the wintertime in Michigan. Uh, it wasn't, they weren't doing exactly the best job at keeping the roads clear during the winter on anything except the state trunk lines uh, at the time and, you know, the interstates and the U.S. routes. But that was all done by the state. Locally, it was kind of just a mess. Um, so it's kind of cool, like, to just go to school or do whatever and just kind of, like, be able to show up and, you know, just kind of patrol around the parking lot and two-wheel drive, do donuts and stuff like that. I was kind of surprised I never really got in trouble for any of that stuff in um, high school, but nobody really seemed to care so long as you were showing up on time. It weren't really causing much trouble. Uh, so this 1500, I ended up taking it to uh, Phoenix when I moved there in 2001 after graduating high school. Uh, moved to Phoenix, uh, my dad and I, we loaded it up and drove across the country in two days. Um, so I kept the this truck for about, I want to say, another two, three years. Uh, and it was starting to get pretty long in the tooth. There was a pretty infamous... Um, mechanical failure where two of the fuel injectors burst on some weird side street in the city of Scottsdale and uh, 
I actually got the engine started briefly, which that's not good. It was pouring gas all over the place. Uh, so luckily, didn't that nothing ever happened with that. But it was kind of the writing was on the wall. Is like this is a little bit beyond the budget that I could afford at the time uh, to keep maintaining the truck at that size uh, with that poor fuel economy. Because this is right around when gas prices went from their historic lows, kind of moving towards uh, some of the historic highs we'd see around 2010. Uh, so I ended up selling it, uh, and I ended up basically finding a Ford Mustang SN95, a 2002, uh, a V6, a 3.8 OHV, um, for basically the same price as what I sold the truck. So it was kind of cool. I got a lot of use out of that Mustang. Uh, this would have been when the 3.8 uh, V6 in the Mustang had been upgraded to, I want to say it was 193 horsepower by then. So it was reasonably quick. Um, but it was just, uh, just the worst sounding car I've ever owned. It just sounded like a Ford Ranger because the engine essentially was from a Ford Ranger. Uh, but I really, really liked that car. It kind of got me into, you know, like the whole muscle car, pony car thing. Um, kind of where that all started i just really enjoyed that size of car uh which i want to say i got about a hundred thousand miles out of that mustang by the time i got rid of it and uh what i got rid of it for was a 2010 chevy camaro ss or one ss uh this was an automatic so it had an l99 as opposed to an ls3 the only difference between an LS3 and an L99 is um, the L99 uh, is hooked up to an automatic uh, and a Camaro application and it would have cylinder deactivation. Basically completely worthless. Uh, I really should have just gone for the LS3 because the Camaro and the fifth generation just had crappy paddle shifters and they weren't even really paddles, they were mainly just buttons on the back of the steering wheel. Uh, but basically, this was a Zeta platform car, and the reason I really, really wanted it, because I ended up test driving a 2005 Pontiac GTO, which had an LS2 in it, loved the car, it was manual, black on black, and I really should have bought this friggin' thing as opposed to the house, which I thought would have been the rational decision, but the recession sure showed me I was wrong about that. Uh, anyways, the, the GTO, they couldn't sell that car because everyone hated how it looked. It looked like a big, giant Cavalier, and, and everyone was expecting, like, you know, an old-school muscle car thing. So the Camaro was off of the Zeta platform, which was basically the successor to the previous Gen Monaro platform. So basically, it drove exactly the same. So it was a car that I absolutely loved. Um only drove it around, I want to say, for two years as a regular driver. Uh, by the time I got rid of it, it had 21,000 miles on it, and I had gone through one set of P0 tires. Uh, for some context, those are racing tires. They had a 220 uh, treadwear rating, uh, so basically they were gone by 19,000 miles. Um, not a very practical car to try to daily and every day and I kind of learned my lesson on it if you're going to get something cool uh, something that's got a lot of power really unless you're willing to live with the fact that the car is going to get abused and used and kind of just beat up like a normal daily driver if you can't accept that don't get a car like that for that use because you will end up regretting it uh, and I sure did when I got to Florida but we're getting ahead of ourselves there so, still in Arizona, 
uh, um, with the Cam- I have my Camaro at the time. I ended up picking up a job where it would require me to drive mm, probably 60,000, 80,000 miles a year, have um, 100, 150 overnight stays. I'm not exaggerating this figure. It was absolutely ludicrous how much I was on the road at the time, but they paid for mileage uh, reimbursement pretty much on every expense. Uh, so rather than doing a company car, they basically either get like a your car paid for pretty much. Uh, so to that end, I ended up buying a 2012 Ford Fiesta ST. Uh, and basically, this was the most reliable car I have ever owned uh, in the long term, by far. Uh, this car was pretty fantastic. Uh, it was, I, I remember it had been out in Europe for a while. Uh, I want to see what generation this Ford Fiesta was. It was the sixth generation. So 1.6 liter uh, inline Ford had this twin clutch six speed automatic in it that just had really firm shifts and everything. It was not exactly the most comfortable car. In fact, I would say it was a pretty uncomfortable car to sit in until you got the seats worn in. But what this thing was is basically bulletproof with reliability, and uh, the fuel economy was top-notch. I averaged 42.4 miles over this car, on this more miles per gallon in this car over the course of like 153,000 miles uh, in the two and a half years I had that job. Um, the only thing that ever really went wrong with that Fiesta was it had this strange problem where the sensor in the uh, capless fuel filler broke. So what ended up happening was once that sensor broke, uh, the car always thought it was full. Uh, so it kind of like had to three-quarter pressure like any fuel pump I was using. And I had to actually calculate for a while how much gas that I needed to fill up uh, based off how much I, uh, based off the fuel economy readings in the car. Because uh, the car was so new to the American market at the time, I think I'd put like 60,000 miles on it. They didn't have the replacement sensor in to special order it. Um, but I ended up selling it to some guy in, in Florida. Uh, so in 2013, I moved to Florida. I drove the Fiesta out there, shipped the Camaro, and I ended up selling to some guy in my mom's retirement community uh, north of Tampa uh, in Spring Hill. And it still had five millimeters of the original front brake pads on it. So just really, really great car for commuting around, uh, a lot of high mileage stuff. Uh, it just, it, it really was an outstanding car, and I really can't say enough good things about that generation of the Ford Fiesta. It was really, really, really good. Um, so to that end, moved to Florida. I have the Camaro again. I'm driving fairly short um, distances between where I work in the Florida Keys and where I was living. Uh, however, this is where the short so shortcomings of a performance car as a daily driver start to come in that I already mentioned. So I get rid of the Camaro, figure you know, it's just not worth the hassle that I'm basically working and living around a military base in the Florida Keys. I might as well get something that's kind of more suited to you know, like daily driving is something I'm not going to be so upset about, you know, getting damaged and dinged and stuff like that. So I ended up getting a 2014 Chevy Sonic. Um, this car was mm, probably the worst driver, drive daily driver car I've ever owned. Um, 
things I like about it. It had a 1.4 liter inline four turbo, uh, very responsive, very peppy, 138 horsepower, 138 pound feet of torque. For a little subcombat car, it could really move pretty well, um, but the build quality was completely terrible on it, uh, just awful. Uh, trim pieces would constantly fall off. Um, and th this car never really accumulated a lot of mileage. So there wasn't a lot of reason for it, uh, but things like the infotainment system kept breaking down and had to be reflashed and basically ended up giving up on it eventually because I hardly ever used the thing. Had a really strange habit of uh, getting um, knocking, uh, and I kind of attribute that to the fact that it was a turbo engine that was trying to, basically the recommended fuel was 87 octane, which I really thought was odd. Uh, you figure it would... B91, given it was a turbo, but it wasn't like a high-compression turbo, so I guess that's kind of what General Motors was rolling with on it. Anyways, uh, kind of the final straw was I had this really terrible problem I could never really get resolved, um, so I ended up taking this Sonic moving to California in it, and when I got to California, there was this just strange repeating problem where basically this car would have issues with... Um, the brakes um you know this was a you know front brake rear disc car but something would happen where basically there would be too much pressure you know in the brake system or too little so after a lot of driving it would just basically the pedal would just be stiff as a brick or it would just go straight to the floor and basically you'd have like no stopping response at all because it's basically relying on the drums at this point or at least that's kind of what i could attribute it to and the only real solution that i could find um while driving was to just park the car for 30 minutes and let everything cool off which is not what you want so i had plenty of brake pad had plenty of um, rotor left everything like that so i had the brake master cylinder bled a couple times uh it would solve the problem for a while but it just would come back every single time so i finally get rid of the thing um oh and by the way i would Wax this car, I, I traditionally do very thorough details in my cars. To give you an idea on how the paint, poor the paint quality was on the Sonic, it didn't matter that after, even after every three months that I would do wax on this car, it was still, I owned it for three years and the paint was peeling off the top of the roof. Like, just ridiculously poor build quality. Like, I couldn't say less things about that build quality. It had a lot of things I liked. Uh, the one point four turbo great engine uh except for the i feel like it should have been rated for 91 octane but the thing that i did like about that car that was really really nice was the automatic uh multimatic gear selector so basically this was kind of like the, one of these early variations where you could select your gear in automatic mode it was hugely advantageous on a lot of these mountain roads in california which required first and second gear to descend safely Really, really liked it. Really wish I still had something like that uh, in my Impreza. So uh, before I had moved back to the West Coast, I decided to it was time to get another muscle car. So I ended up getting a 2016 Dodge Challenger Scat Pack. Um, and this car uh, kind of was meant to honor, like, the memory of my parents, um, especially my dad and, you know, like the sponsorship that he had with Prodigy Online and NASCAR in the 1990s. Uh, so this car has been featured on Gribble Nation in the past. It's the purple and green uh, Dodge Challenger. 
which was the color of the Progeon line car in 1996. Uh, it's not the exact one-for-one -one color scheme, but uh, it's very, very close. I had wanted a 2015 with Sublime Green, but by the time I was ready to place my order, uh, the 2015 model year was getting close to its run, and Sublime Green was a limited production. Uh, but I found out that Plum Crazy, which is the actual color of the purple with uh, Dodge, was going to be available. So I, I put an order in for it. Uh, I got some custom uh, sublime green stripes made for it. And that is the explanation as to why the car is purple and green. Um, I'm not a big fan of just vanilla colors. Uh, so kind of going back a little bit. The... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, my Sonic was red, my, my Chevy 1500 was red, my Mustang and my Sunbird were white, uh, but my Camaro uh, was actually orange uh, and blue, which was meant to be kind of like a reverse of the Detroit Tigers colors. I just really liked how that color combination popped. It had the traditional Camaro hockey sticks and, you know, racy stripe down the middle. So it kind of reminded me, I was kind of going for like a, um, you know, like a, a Yanko Camaro look to it when I first got it. And I kind of evolved it to, a, I wanted some, an accenting, accentuating color, which was the blue. Uh, the Fiesta actually was a lime green, uh, which was kind of a, I liked it. I liked that. I like just different colors on cars. So it kind of was neat to see, but it always like people are like, why would you get that color? And. Honestly, I would probably get another green car. <laughs> uh, that brings me to the car that I currently daily drive, which is my 2020 Chevy Subaru Impreza. Um, it's basically the same thing that Dan drives, except uh, I have a sedan uh, base model versus his hatchback. Um, I actually use um, this car for it's a lot of its off-roading intended purpose. Um so in California, one of the things you tend to run into in the mountains is they don't pre-treat the roads. Uh, they don't use salt or anything really like that uh, in snowy conditions. So basically you are subject to chain controls, which sucks a lot. Um, I, I hate putting on chains. I absolutely loathe it. Uh, I know how to do it. I can do it fairly easily, but it's never a fun and enjoyable experience. Uh, and I do enjoy dirt roads, gravel roads, and I enjoy driving in the snow. So one of the things that I wanted was uh, the capability of all-wheel drive, which is obviously something that a Subaru has, uh, and in present, too. Uh, I have gotten a lot of use out of the car, not necessarily in snowy applications, not as much as I thought, but with dirt roads, and really roads that you wouldn't think a car would have any business on. Uh, specifically, like LaGloria Road near Pinnacles National Park, um... The Sierra Vista Scenic Byway has some very hardcore uh, dirt roads, which are essentially probably recently graded in the last 10 years. Uh, but like Basor Road or Forest Route 7, man, that's just, that's bad. Uh, and I, I'm kind of surprised I didn't really have any problems, but the approach and departure angle on that car are actually very, very good. I uh, do have some experience with off-roading, so I got a general idea of what I'm doing. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable with it. Uh, so usually know when to not bite off more than I can chew, but that Impreza has been able to do a lot more than I've expected it to. There's a campground we go to in Sierra National Forest, which is on a very poorly maintained dirt road. Uh, that car has not ever given me any trouble getting to it. 
Uh, and it's red. Another boring color, <laughs> but that's what they had on the dealer lot. Um, I wanted the base model. Um, so basically, this thing, base, it, it just has steel wheels. I took the hubcaps off of it because I thought they looked terrible. Um, I do like the infotainment thing. I, I do use it to listen to stuff. I'm starting to get a little bit more adapted to things like uh, media technology, but to be quite honest, I've never been very versed in that kind of thing. Uh, but I know it's working pretty well for Dan. Uh, I know my wife really wish she has it in her 2019 Forester, uh, which the only thing I would add with that is the Forester has the way better engine than the 2.5 Boxer versus the 2.0. Uh, as the thing I really don't like in my Impreza, uh, the 2.0 is just feels anemic uh, sometimes. It just doesn't have much response to it, whereas that 2.5 boxer really, really does. I really wish the 2.5 was an option because I probably would have paid a little bit extra for that engine. Um, something else I don't like, and this is kind of my fault, but this is also because I wanted the base trim model. The gear selector, you just get low gear. That, that, that's it. And with a CVT, that's strange. Um, that just trying to do low gear in a CVT is very, very odd. Um, at speed, on a freeway, not too bad. Not Nothing too weird to deal with. Um, but like if I'm coming down like something like a Mineral King Road, like where you're going about... 15, 20 miles per hour anyways descending, uh, it, it gets really weird because you like basically have to stop and trick the CBT to basically you know, give you low gear or simulate low gear to the best of its ability with just being able to hit it into L. It's uh, where I really miss being able to select the gear, but uh, really I should have got a manual transmission or stepped up to another trim level, but it hasn't been too big of a deal because I kind of figured out what I'm doing and the roads that I need to do it on. There's really nobody out there to kind of hurry me along or rush me when I'm rush what I'm doing. Uh, as far as cars that I've thought are kind of strange or notable over the years, uh, one that comes to mind that I did drive with some fairly fair regularity was a 1992 Ford Tempo, and this is when I owned the Camaro. It was back in Phoenix. Um, this car was like in somebody's shed in Washington. One of my renters owned it. Um, it 30,000 miles on it, and this is like in the early 2010s when this thing's rolling around. The car was sitting for so long, the tires literally had dry, dry rotted off of it. Um, in theory, nothing was wrong with the car except everything was wrong with the car because it was just a complete piece of junk. Uh, she ended up calling this thing like Bluebird or something. Uh, it had like this terrible rattle that I could never identify where it was coming from. Uh, it was somewhere like in the door panel. Like I would just have to like elbow it really hard if like I ended up taking this thing somewhere. Uh, like we took it to Payson one time in Flagstaff and basically that just ended up giving up and just hitting it a bunch of times and then cranking up the music and just drowning it out. Um, not a fond memory with that car or at least not a good indicator of how things were in the 1990s with American production cars. They were really bad. Um, her sister actually had a 1992 Ford Taurus wagon Uh it was actually teal, and I wouldn't say that the Taurus was particularly bad unto itself, but what was interesting about this car was somebody had jerry-rigged it to where I could basically just go in there and turn the ignition without a key. I, I never have 
run into that. All the years that I've run and worked on cars and stuff like that, I've never seen an ignition that was so damaged that you literally could just turn it without a key. It was like the weirdest thing. Uh, the car had some severe suspension damage, so it was kind of a wild car to drive, but it was interesting. A Taurus wagon, I just like, you, you don't run into that kind of thing. Um, other than that, I mean... <clears throat> I could probably let this go on for an hour, but we're getting kind of close to the 30-minute window. If I was going to say dream car, car that I would really like to have to go with the Challenger in the garage, this is going to sound surprising. I would love to have a Chevette, uh, a Chevrolet Chevette. This car, uh, I had a grandparent that had one of these things, and they are absolutely horrendous uh this is a rear-wheel drive subcompact car that was kind of like a stopgap measure to general motors getting an actual real true compact subcompact uh competitor to the japanese manufacturers during what we call in the car world the malaise era so basically this is about as awful as cars can get Ironically, I always thought it kind of handled pretty well. Um, the brakes were terrible, of course, but it was a pretty decent handler. What was really notable, and I saw this in an old Motor Week episode with the Pontiac 1000, to get up to 60 miles per hour, it took this car literally 30 seconds. Like, un inconceivably slow by modern standards. 30 seconds to get up to 60, and I forget... Where I saw this reference, but I believe a Mack truck at the time took 29 seconds to get up to 60. So it's just, I want like the worst one I can find um, that like is just terrible shape, probably has rust on it. Uh, just, you know, and there's this air filter thing where basically you have to take the whole freaking air filter canister out because it's like a one piece thing. So like the air filter is inside this thing, but you can't remove it. So you have to replace the whole assembly every time you need an air filter. So, like, you pretty much got to get, like, an aftermarket thing if you want to own a Chevette. Uh, it's just really, really weird and terrible. Uh, I figured this would be kind of, like, a really fun car just to kind of, like, drive around and look hideous and <laughs> or maybe turn it into, like, some sort of weird resto mod, find, like, an LT1 engine and throw it in there somehow, like, make it make it fit, uh, find somebody to help make it fit, uh, get some real cool suspension parts and brake pieces, four-wheel disc, I don't, I don't know, but I've always kind of had a dream of taking, like, a terrible old crappy 70s Eros car and turning it into something kind of neat, uh, but, this kind of turned in a little bit longer than I was expecting. So, yeah, that's kind of the rundown of my garage, or well, things have been in my garage. Uh, so, there it is. Uh, so, this has been Tom with the Gribble Nation Roadcast. Uh, check you out later.